1: Welcome to Bible Bash, where we aim to equip the saints for the works of ministry by answering the questions you're not allowed to ask. On this episode, we'll be answering the age-old question, should we listen to Hillsong, Bethel, Jesus Culture, and Elevation Music? In order to answer this question, we'll be joined by special guest, Dr. Scott Annual. Uh, Scott is Executive Vice President and Editor-at-Chief in G3 Ministries and Professor of Pastoral Theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. He's a teacher of culture, worship, ascetics, and church ministry philosophy. He lectures around the country and churches conferences colleges and seminaries and has authored several books and dozens of articles uh, scott holds a master's degree in theological studies at southwestern baptist theological seminary a master's degree in aesthetics at uh, northern illinois university and a phd in worship ministry at southwestern baptist theological seminary uh, welcome to bible bash it's good to have you with us
0: yeah thanks for having me on uh,
1: i know that we've been enjoying um uh, Uh, Reading your articles on the subject and looking forward to the chance we have to talk to you.
0: Yeah, Uh, absolutely.
1: Yes, sir. Well, one of the things that we wanted to do is just uh, start out by talking about your recent article, and so you had three uh, articles that you put out related to this topic of whether or not we should be uh, listening to Il-Song, Bethel, Jesus Culture, and Elevation Music. Uh, But one of the things I wanted to do is just ask you uh, the basic question that I often get when I'm interacting with people on this subject matter. And so as I'm talking to people, the main concern that people generally have as it relates to this topic is to attempt to evaluate uh, whether or not we should listen to these songs or, or include them as part of our corporate worship, uh, the main uh, question that many people seem to be uh, a- asking essentially is the question, you know, as long as the lyrics are okay, isn't it okay to sing these songs? And and part right. of the reason why they're asking that kind of question is because it seems like, you know, as you look into the history and the background of some of these uh, uh you know, even some of the older hymns that we listen to that we like, there are some problematic elements as it relates to those kind of things, and so there's sure. uh, concerns as it relates to you know just a Christian stance on boycotting and and, mm-hmm. and p- part of the I think part of the impulse is essentially to think, you know, is. You don't ask too many questions because the more questions essentially you ask as it relates to some of these things the more songs you're gonna to have to chuck out of the you know the church hy- hymnal and so it seems like the simple way that many people are approaching this question essentially is to ask well you know are the lyrics okay and if the lyrics are theologically sound then that that seems to be a simple way that they're trying to navigate this question now right. In your recent articles you called into question this kind of logic i don't know that you uh called it into very explicitly maybe in the second article you you did yeah. but but uh you have some response to that i'd like to hear it
0: yeah well i think you know you, you it's funny you phrased it the age old question earlier i mean it, you know it's <laughs> maybe not age old but this debate on whether we should <laughs> sing hillsong bethel these kind of groups has been around for a while Sure. Um, and a lot of men, you know, Justin Peters, Costi Hinn, Owen Strand, others have argued that we ought not to because of the theology, the clearly, in some cases, heretical theology of these groups. Um, and so the question, as you framed it, then often comes up, well, as long as, you know, what about, you know, there, there are some some of their songs, some of their lyrics, I think a lot of people would recognize yeah, there's at least questionable theology in the lyrics, but there are other songs that are produced by these groups that don't necessarily have problematic lyrics. And so the question is, if a song has good lyrics, but the movement has theological problems, does that render the song uh, unusable? And um, and what a lot of men, a lot of men have argued is that we shouldn't sing those songs because of the theological problems. I think we we have to recognize there is a difference. Because you're right, there there are a lot of things that we sing in our in hymnals, traditional what are considered traditional hymns, written by men whose theology, in some cases, we might question, or you know, we might sing a hymn by a Lutheran or by a Presbyterian. I happen to be a Baptist, right? So is there a problem sure. there? Or we might sing things but that were written by Roman Catholics or or even more uh, more ab- apparent, uh theology. Um, but th- there's a difference between that. And these movements, I would argue, for a couple of reasons. Number one, Hillsong Bethel, these kinds of groups, these are commercial industries. So even purchasing, for instance, a song with with good lyrics is supporting an industry that has not only theological problems but as has come out recently even leadership and abuse problems and all sorts of things so i would say there that argumentation is valid that we ought to be careful about giving our money toward supporting ministries that have theological problems if i sing a hymn by bernard of clairvaux who was in the 12th century, whose theology in some areas I might disagree with, if I sing, Oh Sacred Head Now Wounded, or Jesus the Very Thought of Thee, I'm not putting my money towards supporting his theology, sure. which is different than what we're talking about with these groups. So I think that's valid argumentation, although the point of my articles was not actually that. I sort of acknowledged the various arguments that are used to say we ought not sing hill song i was i actually the, the original impetus for writing that first article was i felt that there was a, an even deeper reason we ought not sing the music of groups like that that that's even more significant from my perspective than even just the theology of those movements
1: Sure, and I think I wanted to spend the bulk of our time discussing why uh, you felt like the reason that you included was more significant than some of the other reasons. And you you mentioned yeah. a wide variety of reasons that individuals might give, uh, that are beyond just uh, the lyrics issue in general. And so you yeah. you mentioned like the leaders appear to be teaching formal heresy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, you know some of the leaders, particularly with Hillsong, are practicing sexual immorality. Have questionable views on gay gay marriage, um, and then there are <laughs> there are some lyrical problems with many of the songs, uh, at the very least. Yeah. Uh, that uh, you know, I I know that I as I'm trying to evaluate many of the lyrics. Well, I, this is just a curiosity I have before we get into the main thing. But as I you know evaluated the lyrics myself, I've I've often been somewhat surprised because you know the the standard. Point of view is that these lyrics are mostly okay, but then as I'm reading them, I'm normally pretty frustrated with myself. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're <laughs>
0: often vague at best, yeah. and and then questionable and even downright you know um, uh, heretical at, at worst. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. the opening of that the opening of that first article, I was I was just sort of listing you know, the problems, bullet pointing the common arguments sure. that I see. For why we ought not sing them, and again, I think they're all valid to a point, um, but all, but all on the way to make a, a different article that I've not right. seen made. You know, but yeah, I, th- I think they are valid, and I'm I'm very appreciative of the men who have stood up and made some of those clear arguments.
1: Sure. Now, I, I think um, with with those other arguments that you mentioned, you know, as you as you try to cycle through a lot of those arguments, um, I, I'll just tell you my response to. You know how I was interacting with it myself. You know, with a lot of the uh, the other arguments, the traditional, I would say, the ones that are common, the ones that you mentioned. I, yeah. I, you know, as I'm thinking through the Bible and I'm thinking through what the what the Bible says about various things, like you, you think about financially supporting false teachers, and you can just right. go to First John and you can. You know, think through issues related to not even greeting a you know a false teacher yeah. or inviting right. them in for hospitality, and those seem to be like clear passages that would apply to that kind of scenario. Or you know, have you know, mark and avoid those who are teaching you know heterodox yeah. views, and those right. like we have clear passages like that. Or even as it relates to you know the idea of um, the, the sexual immorality that's practiced by the leaders, you have passages that you can go to. That that uh, come to my mind very clearly, but then uh, you, yeah. the the route you went is essentially, you said the main. Uh, let me see if I can quote you here. You said all of these are legitimate reasons to stop singing music from these groups, uh, but then you said these are not the most important reason you should stop. Uh, the big biggest reason you should stop singing songs from Hill, Hillsong, Bethel, Jesus Culture, and Elevation is that their music embodies a false theology of worship. Now uh, I I thought that that was curious because. Um, you know, some of the things that you mentioned in this article, I've thought through in different areas, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as it relates to just the appropriateness of singing. You know, I don't know if you want to step on this anthill or not, but <laughs> the appropriateness of... Uh, I'm not know, afraid some, of stepping on anthill. I'm
0: okay, <laughs> <laughs> singing, you know,
1: rap music in a worship service or something yeah. like that. I've thought through some of these things as it relates to that or, yeah, you, you know, just... Um, uh, Musical genre obviously means something, and it's communicating right. something. But then, you know, as you, you applied it, uh, you applied it very specifically to Hillsong and Bethel and Jesus culture, and I thought I thought it was very interesting. And so, uh, but my question, basically, the first question I wanted to ask you related to this was why Why do you think that um, the uh, the biggest reason you should stop singing these songs is the fact that they're embodying a false theology of worship? So maybe you can well because
0: yeah, and, and again, and again, I, when I say their music embodies false theology of worship, yep. ironically, I think a lot of people hear that, and they think I mean the lyrics, and I don't. So I'm saying, let's set the lyrics aside Share for a minute, and, and let's talk about the music itself, right. the music itself, and and that all that it encompasses, right? We're not just talking about a series of notes. We're talking about how it's performed, the instrumentation, sure. everything about it. Embodies a certain theology that I would argue, from my sort of reformed perspective, is is you know is a false theology of worship. The reason that's the bigger reason is because it applies across the board. So even with with the whether this whether the lyrics are good, whether they're questionable or whether they're heresy, is irrelevant because when it comes to the music, it's all problematic from my theological framework. So that's even that's an even bigger reason that wipes it all off the slate. Rather, I mean, we don't even have to the debate. Then, well, what if the lyrics are good? Doesn't matter. I don't care if the lyrics you feel are like perfectly. This is a more
1: airtight argument to make against. It's more
0: that... airtight and it's more, uni- it more universally describes what the music is doing.
1: Because there's right. a consistency to the style of the music that is. Uh...
0: Yeah. And the underlying and and the underlying theology, and that's that's sure. what I'm really getting at. Sure. And and admittedly, and I sort of get to this towards the end of the article. And this is where some astute readers saw what I was arguing and got upset, is because I was using Hillsong, Bethel, Jesus Culture, and Elevation as really a launching pad to really criticize a much broader swath of worship music that comes out of a Pentecostal theology of worship which again i would argue is is false is contrary to scripture and so we're talking about a a wider range of music some of which has theologically good and helpful and useful lyrics but nevertheless and not false teachers and everything right and and doesn't have the same association issues or the same giving your money to support i mean there are you know, giving your money to support problematic movements or or industries, but at the same time, my my biggest concern here, and the reason I wrote the article, is I think for over fifty years now, evangelical churches, good evangelical churches with sound theology, who are discerning about what they sing lyrically, are being inundated by a theology of worship that if you wrote it out for them they would completely disagree with but they don't recognize is infused into their their churches and their expectations about the nature of worship and their understanding of the essence of worship and it's all been communicated through this certain kind of music that has come to dominate uh, modern evangelicalism
1: well maybe you can go ahead and just for our listeners just give a brief um, summary of your argument so you're basically saying yeah. that this music is embodying a false theology of worship so go ahead and get you know spell yeah out. so, so, what you so and I,
0: about? I i i introduced in this article and I i meant this to be a standalone article but it sort of went viral and it's got <laughs> you know uh, almost 100,000 hits now and um, there's a lot of online talk about it so i did the two follow-up articles to tor- sort of flesh this out a little bit um and basically what i'm arguing is there there are essentially two two different dominant theologies of worship at play um and they have they have been sort of that there's been an ebb and flow of them throughout church history actually uh, there there's this is a bit of a simplification because it's not all that simple. but generally speaking, I would argue that that obviously the New testament teaches a particular theology of worship that was uh, over time slowly corrupted during the middle ages and what became sort of Roman Catholic sacramental worship that was then obviously objected to during the Reformation and a again a reformed or what i call in the in the later articles, a covenant renewal theology of worship was recovered during the Reformation. So I would say the New Testament teaches it. The the sacramental worship took over during the Middle Ages. The Reformation recovered a covenant renewal theology of worship once again. And then it was really within, uh, I mean, first sort of revivalism and the holiness movement in the 19th century, and then especially Pentecostalism in the 20th century, that really shifted back to a sacramental theology of worship there there are striking similarities between the theology of worship of roman catholicism and the theology of worship of pentecostalism and i say that not uh, you know there there maybe you could spell out some of those yeah so it's it's a it's a theology of worship in which um my expectation is that my goal in the worship service is that I will experience the felt presence of God. Sure. So for Roman Roman Catholics, that was achieved through the, their various sacramental understanding. The, and it was all achieved through this sort of creation of an atmosphere. Uh, for them, it was smells and bells. But even um, even with the architecture, medieval architecture deliberately darkened the nave where the people sat and lightened the chancel where the priests, where the worship was taking place, all to give this sort of aura, uh, an atmosphere of the presence of God. That was what the you know the smoke and the sense and all of that was was uh, an attempt to create the experience of God's presence. That has now come back into force within Pentecostal worship, but largely through music. That that's become the dominant. The dominant vehicle through which we experience God's presence. In fact, there was a book written in the 90s called God's Presence Through Music. Uh, And Judson Cornwall and many of the authors, early authors of Pentecostalism, all the way up to more recent authors, explicitly argue that it is through music carefully engineered to create certain kinds of emotional flow that's the actual language that they use that we come to experience tangibly and physically the presence of god and so uh and and they they call it musical sacramentality um that that's that's from their own language so i'm a, i'm i'm a, you know if if someone is pentecostal if that's their theology then it makes sense for them to worship that way. I disagree with it because I disagree with with, with their theology. But my biggest concern is when uh, churches, pastors who are not Pentecostal, who are uh, Reformed or maybe just broadly evangelical but a more of a cessationist, non-Pentecostal theology— when they worship like that, not only sure. is it inconsistent with the theology that they say they believe, but it is also impacting their people uh, to embrace this sacramental Pentecostal theology of worship when in their doctrinal statement and in their preaching and their teaching, they would never want those things to be taught. But again, and this is this is another reason I say this is the biggest reason you should stop singing it, because it's this subtle influence That that has that has impacted our churches for now over fifty years, and a lot of pastors don't recognize it.
1: Well, one of the things that's amazing about that kind of discussion in general is that you know, as you think about um, that, the very charismatic question that you're bringing up, uh, it's like it's indisputable. Like to look around the evangelical church today and to see how uh, charismatic. You know these traditional non-charismatic denominations actually have become, and it's not shocking to know like how it's happened. I mean, it's obviously happened because of the worship music, (laughs) you know. And and and, and the worship music is obviously you know what is being played on your standard Christian radio. And I mean, your standard Christian radio stations today are essentially, you know, name it claim it prosperity uh, kind of radio stations. And it's just embarrassing. I mean, it's one of the things. It's one of those things where you know i think i was paying attention to this maybe 15 years ago and thinking to myself man like they they're getting more and more charismatic but then today i mean i i haven't listened to i don't don't listen to christian radio because i just can't stand anything they say (laughs) Mm -hmm. then the songs are all you know prosperity based but now it's just crass prosperity stuff it's on the on the radio and that's what's happening And, and then you look around you know, at the standard, you know, Christian asten- attending the standard church today, and they right. are—they're functionally charismatic. They may not be speaking That's in right. tongues, and they may not be, you know, trying to knock anyone over, <laughs> right. as far as that goes. But, but they,
0: it's this—it's this expectation that I—that I will experience physically God's presence. Not that physical things are bad, right? I'm not gnostic. We—we have emotions, we feel things, sure. we do things physically with our bodies, but none of those things are evidence or proof. Uh, or or an or the essence of god's presence and that's part of the problem is, is really it, it leads to burnout and discouragement you see you see this you hear sure. testimonies of people who go through these movements and they and and they don't they no longer have these experiences and so they wonder what's wrong with me is god really here you know, do I need something more? And so either they fall away from the faith or they end up going and chasing newer and more exciting fads. I mean, that's the problem with this music. It really is like a narcotic where it has this effect on you physically, but over time it wears off and you you need a higher intensity. You need something new and novel and more exciting in order to create the same sort of experience. Uh, And so it really, you know, not only is it just, theologically problematic but it's actually harmful to true spiritual growth to true spirituality um and it leads to a lot of you know a lot of spiritual burnout and and people actually leaving the faith
1: well you know i um it's it's not uncommon today to hear people even crassly speak of you know the worship experience and that kind of stuff and so but it's one of those things that i've you know as i've looked at the lyrics of these uh these groups that you mentioned, Hillsong, you know, yeah. Elevation, Bethel, it's there. I mean, the charismatic stuff is there, like talking about the coming right. of the Holy Spirit as That's if right. the whole, coming of the Holy Spirit is not an eschatological event that happened in salvation right. history as if it right. is reenacted every week. Or, so there's there's things like that. You know, it's obvious, There's
0: this expectation that we have to somehow invite God or call God sure. down to us, which again is Holy exactly… God, you're welcome here. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's exactly Roman Catholic sacramentalism too. Uh, And it's biblically incorrect. I don't invite God in worship. He is the host. He is there. He has invited me to draw near through Christ by faith. And, and so that, that's where I say it's, it's an earned theology of worship to begin yeah, with.
1: Yeah, well, so, I mean, what I was, what I was getting into, though, is I, I've noticed that in the lyrics, and I've noticed that in the lyrics yeah. for a long time, and it's, it's pervasive through the lyrics. It's in it's subtle ways that peop, most, a lot of people don't catch catch or pick up yeah. on, but it's there if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. And yeah. so I've seen it like as a problem as it relates to that, but then, you know, you, you're making a more specific argument then the theology that's present in the lyrics you're making an argument based on the theology that's embodied in the musical expression itself and so maybe you can just spell out um, spell out your argument as it relates to not not related to theology of the words but related to the the music itself how is the music embodying that pentecostal uh, theology that you're arguing for
0: So, so good question i think and this is the this is the hardest thing for people to grasp because again well, for two reasons. One, for so long, people's expectations about what music is and what and what music is supposed to be doing in worship has 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 you know shifted over time. Sure. Um, but number two, because we are talking about something, we are talking about music, right? Which is a bit challenging to articulate. You know, someone once said, "Talking about music is like dancing about architecture." Right. right. It's just it it the the, the nature of music itself and how it communicates how it embodies certain theological uh, uh ideas or expectations is is challenging to 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 articulate because it's music because it's not you know right. if, if it if it could easily be put into words we wouldn't need music but what i try to articulate in i think the third article well the second article too but uh particularly the third article is that historically christians and not just christians really all western thinkers prior to the enlightenment understood that there was generally two kinds of music there was a music that um that bypasses the mind and just works people up into an emotional frenzy okay Uh, and then there is a there is a music that is more ordered more modest you might say that that more carefully supports Contemplation, reflection, um, and expression of noble affections for a particular truth. And universally, Christians avoided that first kind of music. That was the kind of music that pagans used. Uh, it, it, it's, um, it's repetitive, it uh, builds in intensity, there's not a lot of uh, richness to lyrics. Um, it's all about volume and beat and repetitiveness that will sort of work the worshiper up into a, a a euphoria, which was the nature, for instance, of, well, it was the nature of pagan worship during the Old Testament. You see examples of this like with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, just compare compare those two worship experiences right Right. (laughs) you got the prophets of baal working themselves up into this emotional frenzy to the point that they're cutting themselves and you have elijah who prays this modest prayer um so that so this was a contrast between the music of israel which was word centered and the music that was used what would modestly support the the lyrics and the music of pagans this was also the contrast in the the greco-roman period of the new testament where the Greco-Roman cults and religions uh, employed music that was, again, very repetitive, simply worked up the physical passions, and universally, early church fathers said we ought to avoid that kind of music. Calvin Stapert wrote a really helpful book called A New Song for an Old World, in which he traces this and shows how, although there were differences among the early church theologians when it came to how we should handle Greek philosophy. You you had some like Tertullian saying, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And you had others like Clement saying, well, there's some aspects of Greek philosophy that we can can utilize. There was disagreement there. When it came to worship and music, they were all universal in their agreement that we must not use the music of the pagans. That is just about... You know, Clement calls it extravagant music, which works us into a frenzied and frantic sort of experience. Instead, they advocated for modest music that would support the lyrics. That's true all the way through Augustine uh, and then the Reformers, too. There, there's differences, obviously, for instance, between Luther and Calvin on what we should sing. But when it comes to the music itself... They both talk very similarly about the the need to avoid the more licentious music that simply stirs up the flesh and instead uh, uh, use music that will uh, modestly support the lyrics. And and so the problem is when we have a sacramental understanding of music and we, we want music that stirs up these feelings very quickly because that's what we believe will usher in the presence of god then we go toward that music but the problem with that music is it, it, that's that's the theology that's embody, embodied there and by nature that that music uh makes makes us less able to have sort of the modest sort of thoughtful contemplation of theology Uh, in a sort of covenant renewal theology of worship that again i would i would argue is sort of the reformed reformation heritage theology of worship um but we've lost we've lost that understanding of a distinction of music post enlightenment uh and now music is kind of just lumped together i mean you what you said earlier about you know yeah musical styles communicate i think a lot of people don't they don't think that way they, well, they don't they think, think
1: that way with music but they don't think that way across the board and this is something i wanted to ask you about and yeah. so it gets a pervasive uh, uh troublesome phenomenon that you can observe in many different areas uh yeah. and so uh, and i didn't know if you had any thoughts on this but let me see if i can explain what i'm trying to say here uh you know like the uh with the rise of the me too movement and everything yeah. else one of the things that's happened is like if a like if a lady were to wear like a low-cut shirt or something along those lines one of the things that we're being asked to do at this point is to make no assumptions about what she's intending to communicate at all through her dress right. uh, and so like you have to but that's that's the way it is across the board with every right. single um you know form of expression that's beyond that's right. just the culture brutal. and arts yeah. yeah yes and so like uh so what I'm curious about is like, you know, why do you think that is across the board? This isn't just a problem with music. That this yeah. is a problem across the board where we're basically there's this demand. It's a pervasive society-wide demand that we basically have to ignore all forms of communication.
0: Right. Beyond. It's just about the intention of the individual. Well, and I mean yeah. certainly,
1: you know, probably some of it's related to postmodernism in general. And well, that's exactly the relativism. how it was an answer. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's,
0: a, it's a relativism, it's an individualism. Okay. Uh that has per, that has pervaded. And uh, and so it's it's this this whatever, you know, whatever my intention is, that's all that matters. Defined. You can't judge, right? And and but this is a good point to raise, and I'm glad you raised it because you know, uh, I, I, when we're talking about musical communication, or like you said, the you know dress, or facial expressions, sure. or vocal inflection, or cultural expression, uh, we're not talking about intention, right? Is, is it possible that someone could intend to communicate one thing and actually communicate something else? And actually, yeah, it happens all the time. Right? Happens all the time. And I, the example I often use to try to help explain music: music is just. Is just a step above how we communicate through natural vocal inflection, right? We communicate through through our, our 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 vocal inflection, through through our volume, through our pitch, through our the the duration of our speech. It all communicates facial something. So, facial expressions. So, you know, for example, an um, example I, I use often with my students is if you if you were to ask me, you know, how are you doing? And I were to answer with the word F-I-N-E, well, I can communicate a lot of different things with just my tone of voice. I could say, fine, or I could say, fine, or I could say, fine, you know, (laughs) same word, same lyrical content, but the musical expression of my voice communicated three very different messages. And it's possible, you know, often I intend to communicate that, right? But sometimes, or any any, any husband knows this, sure. I might come home after a long day of work. My wife might ask me how the day went. I'm exhausted. So I say, fine. Sure. And then she interprets that to mean, oh, you had a bad day. Well, what happened? Oh, no, no, it wasn't really. I didn't intend that, <laughs> but I did communicate that, right? That doesn't, just because I didn't intend it doesn't mean that, I didn't actually communicate it. I did. And so I ought to change how I communicate if I don't intend to communicate that way. And it's the same with music. I think there's a lot of really godly, well-meaning people who do not intend to communicate through their music what the music is actually communicating. I'm not questioning their motives, their intention, or their hearts. They may be all in the right place. But They're if they are sending mixed don't,
1: messages, essentially, is what you're saying. That's
0: exactly right. Yep. And, and, and the lyrics might be good. And I might say, okay, well then, but make sure that the way in which you communicate is matching what you're communicating. And that's that's what I'm really trying to get at. Sure. You know, we might sing lyrics that are perfectly not, that don't embody that kind of theology. We might sing lyrics that are explicitly about covenant renewal, and it's not about welcoming the Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. But our music can actually contradict the lyrics. And I would argue in the long run, the music is more powerfully potent. The music is going to impact people more strongly. People don't go home. Then the sermon you mean, is that what you're trying to say? Or even the lyrics of the hymn. Oh, the, uh, lyri- the lyrics. Oh, the of mi- the
1: music over the lyrics, okay.
0: Right, okay. right. They're, they're, it, that's going to impact them. Not. I'm not saying at all that preaching and lyrics are not important. They absolutely are, and they do influence and, and are very important. But the music does affect us as well. And if the music contradicts, Our theology, if the music contradicts the lyrics or contradicts the sermon, the music is probably gonna win, unless people are really intentionally kind of noticing, you know, the juxtaposition. But for most of the people in the pew, the music is shaping their expectation, shaping their understanding of the nature and presence of God, shaping their understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit and all these sorts of things. In more subtle and and more powerful ways than even the lyrics or the sermon.
1: What's interesting about that is I know that growing up there there were many conversations that individuals had along these lines, uh, uh, basically tr- saying that um, there should be some sort of pushback against uh, you know having your worship service sound like a rock concert. Uh, but yeah. then one of the one of the things that like today that's almost like a a thought process that people are allergic to even. Having period, like that was at least something yeah. that people were thinking about. You know, twenty years ago, right? The worship wars or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I mean, people were thinking about that, but then it seems like uh, basically that argument has been lost completely, right. and now it's a utterly inappropriate question to ask. Yep. And it's kind of yep. interesting to note, like how quickly that question itself has been totally surrendered. And I guess you're crediting postmodernism, relativism. Well, no, to not it necessarily in, in main...
0: to that. I would say. The worship wars were fought by the baby boomers, right? But during that whole period, the next generation was being raised with that kind of music, right? And again, it shaped them. So now, the next generation is like, well, this is what we've always known. Their expectations sure. have been shaped. So why, I mean, this is why this is why there was such vitriol against my article because I am I am questioning just what has become the status quo. And what a lot of people have grown up with, they don't know anything different. And and so to question this is to question the very – I get it. I get it. I, I, I Their actually, relationship
1: with God at a pretty their level. Their relationship
0: with God, their, their genuineness of their piety. Um, and yeah. I don't blame the people in the pew. It's not their fault. Okay. I blame the theologians. I blame the poor theology. I blame the – and really, I mean, the gateway to this – Right. It started in Pentecostalism. And so again, I disagree with Pentecostal theology, but it fit. It made sense. The gateway was the church growth movement. The church growth gurus were looking for ways to attract seekers, right? And to right. make exciting services. And they looked over at the Pentecostals and they said, Wow, that's exciting. I mean, you you can see that this has been historically traced. Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth in their book Loving on Jesus, a concise history of uh Contemporary worship, and they did, just came out with a new book that's a little longer history. They they document this that people like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and their 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 music worship guys looked at Pentecostalism and said, "We're not Pentecostals, but that's that's going to do that's going to stir things up." They brought it into into the sort of the, the non-Pentecostal churches, and so and so again, it's their fault, and the people in the pews grew up with it. Uh, so I understand why people react strongly. Um, although there was, you know, to those articles, there were lots and lots and lots of positive comments too. I think, I think there is as people are becoming more and more reformed, and that's a loaded word. I don't even necessarily mean all that reformed means. I just mean generally Calvinistic. Reform, <laughs> I don't even mean necessarily just Calvinistic. I mean more in the sense of recognizing that every every part of our theology and practice needs to be reformed according to scripture, right? There seems to be a resurgence of that. Now I think Calvinism and some of the other things comes along with that, but a a lot of churches are, are beginning to recognize the problems of the seeker growth movement, uh, the problems with sort of broad, squishy evangelicalism. Um, and so there there was a lot of positive response too, because I was going to ask you about
1: that. Uh, What what do you think, um, you know, related to the proportion of the two, how would you? Well, um, percentage of positive, percentage of hate. Yeah, you know, I, and death threats. You get
0: need to. <laughs> well, not death threats. I personally, I saw more of the positive. Right. I had friends screenshotting me discussions that were happening, kind of you know people i don't follow or mm. um you know or maybe even have muted in the past or whatever so i know that there were discussions happening that were that were negative most of, most of what i saw was really positive just because of the the circles that i swim in sure. are more reformed and and that was that was my target audience again my my target goal was to try to help reformed people realize if if you really want to reform according to scripture if this is the direction you're going, which is a there's a resurgence happening of this sort of perspective right now, then here's one area that you need to think about. You might reform your soteriology, you might reform your your approach to preaching and scripture, you might reform your methodology of of uh, your ecclesiology. But there's a lot of churches that have made good strides there, but are still singing Pentecostal music. Sure. Uh and I want, I wanted them to recognize: okay, here's Here's the next step. Here's something that you need to think about because uh, you're reforming in, in every other area, but this is one area you're, you're not reforming in yet. So I, I'm, I saw a lot of positive. I had a lot of people say that I put into words what they were sort of feeling and suspecting about this sort of thing, but just weren't able to, to communicate. And And so that was encouraging. Um, Cause that was, that was my goal. I mean, my, I wasn't writing, I did have a lot of negative comments from Pentecostal people, but I wasn't writing to them. Right. I mean, in fact, I would say if you're Pentecostal, I disagree with your theology, but Hey, you know, you're worshiping at least consistently. My goal was to try to be an encouragement and a help to people who are trying to reform um, and who, are, you know, just want some, some more thoughtful pieces of that puzzle when it comes to, to worship and music
1: yeah now uh what a uh, question i had just uh curiosity uh what caused you to think seriously about this subject was it related to your studies at northern illinois
0: well that i mean yeah but it went even further back than that i mean i've always just mainly my upbringing and the church that i sp- spent my sort of formative years in had a strong emphasis on theology and a strong emphasis on music so i've always had this sort of dual love i am I'm, I'm a musician I have degrees in music, an undergraduate degree in music, and then a master's degree in in aesthetics. Um, And so I've always been kind of in that world, but then I've always had this love of scripture and of theology and philosophy. And so it's kind of that marriage of the two that used to be very common, right? Again, pre enlightenment, sort of a classical liberal arts education, all pastors would have been trained in music and in theology and would have had that combination. It's really, you know, in more recent times and more of the modern period that we don't have that anymore. And that's that's what's created the problem, right? So we have we have pastors and theologians who have absolutely no understanding whatsoever of music or arts or, or culture. And that's then we have – kind of rare
1: for a lot of churches even to like, – like for the pastor to even have any uh, say in what the worship right. leader –
0: He's usually reading through his sermon notes while the singing is going on, right? And it has, has no part in it. Well, I mean, but
1: then uh, it's just like handed off almost completely to the standard worship leader to the point exactly. where it's, so it's considered inappropriate for him to even comment right. on.
0: And then and then the, the flip side problem is it's handed over to musicians who have very little theological or sure. biblical training. Um, so, yeah, so it was that, you know, it was that combination. And then again, the church, the church that really formed me in sort of my high school years, my pastor had a strong emphasis on this. So I, you know, I remember I went to a Christian school. I remember my 10th or 11th grade writing a paper on philosophy of music. I mean, it just interested me all the way back then. So, I mean, that started it. And then, you know, I, I began to, you know, train for ministry and and then jumped into a church and and then just continued to teach and write and and began to write books and and that sort of thing. Um, so it's just all, all, that, that combination has always kind of been my interest and my calling.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been interesting to me to think about some of the things you're saying, you know, related to just the uh, you know the music used to be written by theologians and now it's yeah. just written by, you know, the uh, popular guy with the good voice and who knows how to, how to play a right. guitar. But then it, it's always seemed to me that, you know, as I'm listening to these songs that are so popular on, on the radio and that we're singing, they always... <laughs> they they many of them feel like they're written by non-believers you know they they describe a kind of experience of christianity that i fundamentally can't relate with at yeah, all
0: very it, very yeah very um immature often yeah and not only did i mean it, it used it used to be very very rare for one individual to write both the lyrics and the music right. there are exceptions martin luther did write some tunes there are a couple exceptions but usually like you said a theologian pastor would write theologically rich lyrics and then a mus- a well trained musician would write the music often musicians who also had good theological training when you think about someone like Johann Sebastian Bach you know one of the greatest if not the greatest composers of all time uh was very theologically astute i mean he had to pass a theological basically ordination council in order to be the chief musician of the church and uh, where he served and um you know he very clearly had that theological acumen but rarely did one really rarely is there one person who can do both. You know, the great hymn writers of old didn't write the music uh the music was written by musicians and then was was married to tunes that were fitting you know with the with the text so uh, and you're right these modern these modern musicians usually I, I mean they're they're usually not good theologians nor are they good musicians, nor are they musicians. Like, yeah. you know, again there are exceptions yeah. there there are things happening in sort of what is sometimes called the modern hymn movement by by men who are theologically astute who are and who also are writing music that definitely is more geared toward congregations but at the same time there's they still don't have the depth of musical uh capability as as those did in the past um so there's there are some limitations there but i think there's there's progress being made and i'm i'm always encouraged to see that
1: all right well just in terms of some of the responses to your article i've i've read some of the responses and i chuckled at a lot of them uh, but what yeah. i wanted to know is uh you know what are what are some of the things that people hear you to be saying essentially that you're not saying like yeah. what are some frequent misunderstandings of what you're saying uh, well, that you've come across <sighs> that um
0: yeah, one of the more recent. I'm actually, I'm going to record my own podcast tomorrow and, and probably address this. But one, one of the one reason that somebody screenshotted for me is, uh, you know, someone basically saying, "Oh, well, annual just intentionally wants boring worship." Right. Right. <laughs> um, but again, it, it that the Christian whole,
1: worship uh, must be as boring as possible in order to be faithful, right?
0: Yeah, is, is that a quote? Is that somebody say that? No, no,
1: I, that was just <laughs> yeah. I think that's an impression of some of many of the comments well, yeah, that I've exactly, heard is yeah. that basically because, you're you advocating for boring music. So Right. And 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 that, so.
0: that's because that's people don't know that there's an alternative. Um and there there this, this is this is the this is the irony of sort of this contemporary pop music. It it is emotionally very limited. I mean it's very limited. There's like there's like this one layer of emotional intensity, and if I don't have this one layer of emotional intensity, everything else I assume is boring. When I would just plead with people, just do it. Go on a fast for, of that for a while, because again, it is like a like narcotic, to where you get addicted to it and you really can't appreciate anything else. Get rid of that for a while. If if you if you just embrace and immerse yourself in what for lack of a better term I'll just call it sort of the reformed worship music tradition it is so i mean if you want to use the word emotion which i which is a anachronistic sort of word anyway um it is there's such a depth and richness of true biblical affection in both the lyrics and the music of sort of traditional reformed uh reformed hymnody that That you you absolutely have to learn to appreciate. It's not immediately gratifying. It doesn't immediately tickle the you know tickle your your gizzard um, because it's not this sort of in your face high octane energy. But I am not at all saying worship ought to be boring. Far from it. It's not boring. I mean that's the thing. Uh, Jonathan Landry Cruz wrote a book recently called What Happens When We Worship, and that's his central argument that you know, people think worship is boring. The answer is not to try to do things exciting to make it not boring. The, the answer is to teach them why it absolutely is not boring. We are in the presence of the Almighty God. We have been invited here through the blood of Christ. We are, we are in God's presence. It's not a felt presence, but it's a very real presence. And that is not boring by definition. And then when you bring in the word of God and strong expositional preaching, and rich biblical prayers and rich lyrics supported by richly composed, beautiful music. Uh, there's there's a richness and a depth there that is you can't articulate, and and people don't appreciate, and they think it's boring because they're addicted to this in-your-face, high octane kind of stuff. Um, so there's no, you know, I'm not at all saying it ought to be boring. It isn't boring by definition. Uh, and there's there's such a depth of richness to what I'm calling covenant renewal reformed worship that's just not present in in the sacramental Pentecostal worship.
1: So part part of the difference that you're articulating, and you can you know straight me out if I haven't uh, summarized you accurately, but uh, what yeah. what I heard you to be saying essentially is that uh, this uh, Pentecostal um, embodied theology music is essentially. Uh, making the emotions primary. So it's targeting the emotions uh, almost raw. And so right. in terms of uh, trying to appeal the emotions in a primary sense over and against trying to p- appeal to the mind or the intellect or uh,
0: would yeah, that, be- it, that That's close. Um, it, it's even there. There's, a whole, there's another layer of this, even when talking about emotion, I mentioned earlier that pre-moderns understood a distinction between, two, between two kinds of music it's also important to recognize that pre-moderns, the, the word emotion is a really new word, right? Pre-moderns didn't use the word. They talked about the difference between the affections of the right. soul and the passions of the flesh. Passions not being bad, these are th- these are things like goosebumps and and adrenaline adrenaline rush and the feelings of our bodies. Our bodies are good. But that's but it, what you what you said, where I agree with you, where you where you're really close to articulating my point, is that, that that first kind of music just targets those passions, just works up those feelings, which are easily worked up and also easily fade away, as opposed to cultivating affections. noble affections for the Lord, which take work. It's not immediate, but it's also deeper, richer, and longer lasting, the you know true biblical affection for the Lord. Um, and Maybe so you can
1: distinguish those two, like in terms of uh, like d- distinguish the two and uh, give me um, how between, that would look. Yeah, uh, the affections well, and the passions of the flesh. Yeah. So, so the an example I like to
0: use it's like the difference between laughing because someone tickles you, right, and laughing because you get a joke, right. Mm-hmm. So in both cases, you have a physical experience. The physical experience is not bad. Fine. But in the case of la- like if I tickle my children and they laugh. They're having an involuntary physical response to a stimulus. Nothing is happening in their mind. It's not as if my three-year-old is thinking, my father is tickling me, therefore I will laugh. It, it's involuntary, right? Well,
1: it's like, so, yeah, I mean, when you're, um, like with your standard you know, worship service, right? <laughs> uh, if you want to put, put it that way, uh, yeah. your standard service that you have there, I mean, typically it's, it, you know, it's been a joke for many years that everyone feels like close to God at the... You know, at the specific part of the right. uh, uh, it's, it's engineered
0: to do that. Right. That's the thing. Right. So everyone, people, you know, people expresses... think it's it's oh, yeah. Sorry, people think it's all about spontaneity, but it is carefully engineered. And you and you read these it's guys a, plan,
1: like it's a it, you know, if it was so spontaneous, everyone wouldn't feel the proximity of God at
0: the same. That's same right. Time. Yeah, they they, <laughs> they 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 it's it's all about certain keys, certain tempos, certain, you know, yeah. emotional atmosphere. And again, it's about this flow. There, there are books written about how to do this, how you lead your congregation through this emotional journey into the Holy of Holies. And if you don't quite see it, then you go back and repeat this. And you, you're, I mean, really, it puts, it puts all of the weight on the worship leader. I mean, it's your job to, to be in the experience tune with what's happening in the room and to know what you need to do in order to create this certain atmosphere. Uh, and it, it, but it's, but it's all engineered. And in fact, and there, you know, there's this documentary that just came out in discovery about Hillsong and I haven't seen it, but somebody watched the first episode and, and sent me a quote. Somebody actually says this where, you know, is what you're feeling actually God, or is it the carefully engineered chord progression that was right. designed right. to do that? Right. Well, that's exactly the point. It is designed to do that, and it does it very well. These people know what they're doing.
1: Yep. Well, I know one of the things that's interesting about that whole discussion in general is that the times that uh, I have felt the most emotion, <laughs> emotional, has often been in like these songs that everyone describe are so boring, and so I mean, I can yeah, listen to absolutely. all these. Um, Contemporary songs that are written, and honestly, I most of the time I just feel frustrated. So I feel emotions, but I mostly just feel. Fr-
0: yeah, right. <laughs> I feel frustrated. Uh, yeah. That uh, again, emotions are not bad, and we experience yeah. emotions. Our bodies are good, but I think a lot of people expect music to do what? What is the Holy Spirit's role, right? right? I want to be moved by the Holy Spirit through the Word, and music helps to give language to that. But I don't want to just be moved by. By music. I want to be moved by the Holy Spirit through the word.
1: Well, and, and that's, but every single time, so, so, like the difference is for me, so as I'm listening to, you know, a lot of the older hymns or if I'm listening to newer hymns, like the, what actually, what actually, you know, stirs my affections, to put it that way, is that yeah. when I, I see something in the words that reminds me of something in the Bible. Yeah. And like the problem is that with the vast majority of the songs that we're singing today, they're not uh, biblical They're not i mean it's not that they're 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 not a lot of them aren't unbiblical
0: yeah
1: they're just they they don't point me to anything in the bible yeah. that i can latch on to so if you yeah. have a brain that's saturated with the bible and you're looking for some sort of connection point there's just nothing there it's just like right. an experience that's totally devoid of like it's, it's like listening to someone write a song who's never read the bible before and there's nothing to latch on to. And so all you have is just a few themes right. that like, they're trying to be creative about, you know, as far as well, that goes, and But and there's no the connection.
0: Most, right. And, and w- one clear example of this is why why is it that everybody's hands go up at this certain moment in the song? Chord, right? progression. And why, why doesn't that happen during a prayer? Why doesn't that happen during a, a, a reading of a full chapter of scripture? Why doesn't that happen during a sermon? Right. Uh, I, I mean, I remember probably, you know, thinking back through my life, one of the, if not the most moving spiritual experiences, if you want to talk like that, and I don't even like using that language, one of the most moving experiences I ever had. You
1: felt conviction of sin. You, I, you know, I was, just the righteousness of God, the holiness moved. of God.
0: What was during a sermon by a strong expositional preacher who most people would describe as boring. I mean, just because he wasn't this great rhetorician and I didn't, I didn't have any sort of outward physical experience. In fact, I remember being just deeply moved and realizing I was sort of sitting there with a frown on my face and a furrowed brow because I was just really thinking, but internally I was deeply moved. So nothing physical was happening. It wasn't at some big high crescendo moment in the sermon or a song because the word I was being moved by the word, by by a clear explanation of the word, um, and 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 but you don't see that in these services. You see everybody's hands are going up at the exact moment when the worship guy intended for them to go up, because it was engineered to happen that way.
1: Yeah. What are what are some other things that people are hearing you say? That uh, do you have anything else?
0: Uh, well, I mean, a lot of people still I think you know misunderstand that I'm talking about the lyrics, you know um and so and that that kind of passes right over them and i can just see that in some of the B- comments
1: basically the original argument as long as the lyrics right. are okay they're yeah, basically they, they, yeah, you yeah, to like be criticizing I say, the
0: lyrics and they're I like say hey, some of them are embodies, good bodies you know music embodies an earned theology Larry. Like, yeah those words are, are so problematic oh, okay, like right. oh, no 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 right. i mean the music you know the music itself um, right. yeah no i i i mean a lot of i think you know the, the the most the most comments i've seen by people who are mad are actually the people who, who are actually getting what I'm saying, who are understanding what I'm saying and who just don't like it, <laughs> you know, because either they disagree, maybe they are Pentecostal or, uh, you know, they, they just disagree with the point. Um, but the, the only kind of misunderstanding, I think, or, or miss, I don't even know main- if it's a misunderstanding. I mean some sometimes I it comes across as if it's a, it's a really a misrepresentation I mean honestly do they think I really want it to be boring is that really what yeah. they believe you know well, when clearly I don't
1: well I mean isn't right, here's another one so I mean isn't this all this isn't this you just trying to impose your oh you know, sure. like uh, preferences on everyone else?
0: right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the thing I mean it's not it's not about preference it's not about upbringing or background you know it's about Trying to discern what's biblical and and being objectively discerning and critical about what the music is doing, what 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 the what the, what theology the music is embodying. Um, and I try to do that. I try to do that through, you know, through throwing showing in scripture and, and history too. And again, this is why I think Lester Ruth and Sui Hong Lim's work is so valuable because they're historians who are not critical of the contemporary worship movement, but they're honest about its roots and they're honest about the embodied theology. And they explicitly say, That the contemporary praise and worship movement as it exists today came from Pentecostalism and church growth methodology. That's where it came from, and that's what it embodies. And again, they're not being critical. They're just being honest. And so I try to point people to that and say, listen, there are some objectively historic realities here. There are some objective biblical and theological realities here. Let's let's set emotion aside for a moment. I mean, I get that it's emotional. We 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 love our music and and especially if we tie our music to our piety, it can be very hurtful to us when somebody condemns it. Um, but let's let's try to be objective. And you know, you you get char- you get you get charges sometimes of you know being um Legalish. Western Western imperial and racist and all this too. But I'm not I'm I'm actually being critical of my own culture. I mean, this came from white middle-class america you know uh and so i'm just trying to be objective and and ask ask uh ask penetrating questions about what this stuff is actually communicating
1: sure what do you want to jump into the multicultural uh argument there
0: yeah well you you brought up rap earlier and i've been involved in discussions about that too and that always stirs up the race the race question right um but again it's not what do you you think about
1: what do you think about rap
0: (laughs) Well, it's a similar, you know, it's a similar thing. Music communicates, music expresses. Music is a medium of communication. It's a vehicle for the communication of ideas. Um, And personally, I would argue that the medium, that medium is not suited to, you know, holy, solemn Christian lyrics. It is suited to uh, sort of in-your-face aggressive assertiveness um, with a little bit of bombacity, you know mixed Brian. in. and and I fully I did you know I, I studied this at length several years back, and I'm fully cognizant of the fact that there are different um, there are different styles of rap and there are different you know genres of hip hop and all that sort of thing. So I recognize the difference, you know the differences that exist. But nevertheless, um, again, I want I want to ask about I want tone, tone matters, right? The way that we communicate something matters. Um, well, and, it seems like if
1: you want to like make a rap video, everyone knows what you do, right? Like in yeah. terms of, I mean, everyone knows like what kind of like personality that you have to put on right. and whatever the personality it's that you have to put on. It's sort of
0: bravado. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's not an, uh,
1: humility and it's not. Uh, that's the thing. It, I mean, I, you,
0: you t- let's take the fruit of the spirit. Let's take the fruit of the spirit and let's take the medium of rap. Can you, is, are is the, it,
1: does it express the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, are love, suffering. those
0: embodied you know, in is. that way of, you know, of, of communicating? The same thing know. is
1: true of like death metal, right? I mean.
0: Absolutely. I mean,
1: right. it, I mean, if you want to communicate anarchy, if you want to communicate anti-authority, you know, right. rebellion like that, does it? Yeah. And then right. you have to ask, well, is that what is that we should sure? be communicating through our it should be we should be embodying you know in our worship services right. uh, And that's what i try to do attitudes. with that second
0: article is, is to say you know let, let's look at what well let's look at what scripture says we ought to embody right what what is what accords with sound doctrine you look at the description you know from the fruit of the spirit to descriptions of spiritual maturity to the kinds of lists that paul gives of the things that we ought to pursue I mean, you mentioned some of them self control, humility, patience, kindness, gentleness. You look at the qualifications for elders and deacons, you know, gravity, sobriety. I mean, those are the kinds of things we, we ought to do. We ought to do studies of that and then just ask careful questions. Does a swagger put that? <laughs> yeah. Does the music embody those kinds of things or does it more embody the vice viceless? That we're supposed to avoid. Um, and again, I mean, that's, you know, I, I, and I think there's room for debate on this. Okay. Let's have these discussions. And someone might, someone might quibble and say, well, let's talk about that. I'm, I, I love that kind of discussion. I, I think we ought to have those kinds of sharpening discussions. The problem is. Most people are unwilling to have the conversation. They just shut you off and say, "Nope, it doesn't communicate anything. You're just a legalist. You're just a racist." You know, they sort of play that that Trump card, um, and and are not even willing to engage in a conversation. I, my my goal in life is not to get everybody to cross their T's and dot their I's just like I do. You know, I, 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 I want to have the humility to say I could be wrong in some of my applications and I, I appreciate people who disagree and who will engage me, um, and, you know, but my, my concern is let's understand what we're talking about, let's understand the nature of culture and of music and of worship, and let's try to be consistent and let's have careful conversations to make sure that what we are doing in practice actually accords with what we believe. That's my underlying concern.
1: What's interesting about that though is that I think the standard way that people engage with that kind of discussion is to try to point to you know where the line transitions you know you know right. point to the hard cases and then if you can you know narrow you basically try to ask the person to define the exact point in which this thing becomes unbiblical and if they can't exactly. give you an exact answer then you dismiss the whole project but then it's just like hey like that isn't the way that life works i mean when someone is being like seductive you know what like that's everyone where's the line i don't know you know i don't know well it's like that that, it's like
0: that famous supreme court case where the they were talking about like what pornography is and one justice said something like i don't know how to define it but i know it when i see it sure right so so yeah i think you're exactly right we try to We try to define the line. And I'll be the first to say that line is blurry. I don't, you know, that's not, it's not.
1: Surely, like, (laughs) if you can't think of an extreme example, then you're not engaging in good faith. Like, if you can't, if you can't point to one example of how this could possibly work in a worship service, then, like, forgive me if I don't take you very serious. Right. Right. Like, so you have to have, like, Cause you're, you're not even trying at that point. You're just, yeah. you're being obtuse and you're trying to basically be destructive.
0: And, that, and that's what I think uh, frustrated a lot of people too, is I, I really try not to give a lot of specific examples Um you know, uh, this particular style or this instrumentation or this group or this album or this or that, you know, because I, mean, for, I do that for a number of reasons. Number one, because there, you know, I want to get, I want to give some room for growth and disagreement and discussion in terms of particular application. Um, but also because I know, you know, the minute you say someone's favorite group, then they shut shut you off and don't listen to anything else, you know. Um, but I, I really, I try to stay in terms of principle terms of theology, in terms of the overarching ideas. And then let's, let's wrestle through the applications. And we might come to different conclusions on some specifics. We might draw lines differently. Let's, that doesn't mean we're all right. Doesn't mean it's, it's relative. Doesn't mean it's neutral. It just means we, we, you know, we're fallible and we, we ought to, we ought to have iron sharpening iron kinds of discussions to help one another make, you know, make God-pleasing decisions. When it comes to all things in life, not only just worship music.
1: Well, what do you, what are some reasons why you think that this is so offensive to so many people? Because I, it, in some sense, this is like a discussion that I have a hard time understanding. Like how it can be. Like I mean, I, I I'm I'm the kind of person, you know, if I'm working out or whatever, I I may listen to first john in greek or something like that as i'm <laughs> like i'm I'm just that kind of person i just right. you know i i spend my days listening to a sermon the bible you know three yeah. times speed or something like that i'm 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 that i'm oriented in that kind of way to where like music for me is just not this um yeah you you, you seem more of like a music lover than me in general yeah. like and i I'm, i don't know that i'm oriented that way i'm more of a computer kind of personality in general yeah. so but then for me it's kind of like i can like you know i could listen to any type of music and i don't have these strong preferences i'm more just you know i've been oriented towards the the theology behind it and right. and you know for me that's that's enough not even talking about how the the discussion you're having which i think is there's um that's a significant piece of the puzzle that we're not talking about but yeah. for for me just with the lyrics themselves it's just one of those things where i find myself so routinely frustrated by you know how often we're talking about brokenness and how often we're talking about um, you, you know just uh, uh ushering in uh, the presence of god into our our music and you know just there's just so many things that come up over and over and over again that are just routinely kind of banging my head against the wall but then yeah. like to me it's like this like this kind of discussion it, it's like i i'm not looking for anything in the music like i'm not looking for an experience in the music anyways so for me it's just like if if i got rid of a song it didn't matter anyways like it's yeah. just i want it to be a faithful but what why do you think for so many people this is so yeah i mean i think near to the bone you
0: know right i think generally a lot of people music is very personal right you got your own playlist your own preferences and so to criticize or you know say anything negative about a particular music that you like people just automatically feel like you're attacking them right so i think that's general across the board you you add in this whole pentecostal sacramental theology Which again, I would say, has impacted you know the the anybody younger than baby boomers. It has impacted you know those those generations of Christians. They've been they've been um, led to believe that this feeling that they're experiencing through the music is the Holy Spirit of God. This is His presence. So if you take that away, you're taking.
1: Henry Blackaby practicing the presence of God Absolutely. applied to the
0: music, and I mean you're basically. you're nailing it. It's more than just I mean, there. There are the, all those all those authors and the and theologians have so impacted the way that we think. You take that away from people, they feel like you're they're you're taking away their 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 relationship with God, right? And and so I again I get why. They get mad about it, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, I just want them to know there's actually something far better, far deeper, far greater, and it's so debilitating. And actually, I mean, and again, I, I want to be careful when I say this because it could be really offensive to people. But that that way of thinking is the nature of paganism, right? Paganism is— He's Trying to tap into
1: God raw, essentially. Like, Yeah,
0: the- I as the worshiper am initiating this encounter— I have to do things in order to get the God's attention and invite him to come down, and then finally I experience something, you know, tangibly. That's paganism. Whereas, well,
1: Yeah, I mean, we're told in the Bible to, you know, we walk by faith, not by sight. That's exactly and, right. And, and, that's and, exactly right. I and mean, Peter says, you know, essentially that they saw Christ transfigured, and we have— Uh, the more sure word in the scripture. That is exactly right.
0: People don't want to trust the sufficiency of scripture. And I mean, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 make this argument so beautifully. Chapter 10, let us draw near, you know, because, because we have confidence to enter the holy place by a new living way through the veil that is his flesh, because we have a great high priest over the house of God. So it's all of Christ because of that, let us draw near, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, that language of drawing near, that's language of worship, right? That's that's how the Old Testament described, described worship that in the in context of Hebrews. Uh, and chapter 12 tells us what we're drawing near to. We are drawing near to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and angels in festal gathering and the saints who've gone before and to God and to Jesus, right? So we're actually, through Christ, drawing near to the very presence of heaven. But, chapter 11, we do it by faith and not by sight. We do it by faith and not by feeling. We have feelings, but they are signs of nothing. We we don't depend on anything tangible, physical, physical or visible to give us confidence that we are actually drawing near to the presence of God. How do you know that you've worshipped? I make this argument in one of my recent books, Biblical Foundations of Christian Worship how do you know you've worshiped? I mean, you ask that question, that tells you everything you need to know about someone's theology. You should be able to answer, how do you know you've worshiped? I know that I've worshiped because I have drawn near to God through Christ by faith with a sincere heart, period. I don't care what kind of feelings you have. You may have high feelings one week. You might have no feelings one week. Again, Jonathan Edwards called those signs of nothing. They're not bad or good. I know I've worshiped. Because I have come through the blood of Christ with sincere uh, a sincere heart, ready to hear the word of God, ready to respond with praise, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and commitment. I have communed with God. There's nothing tangible to prove that other than my faith in what God has promised.
1: I think Jerry Bridges had a quote uh, that a definition of faith he he um, gave before died, but. I think he's, he essentially said that faith is not a passive state of mind, but a vigorous act of the soul whereby we choose to lay hold, hold of the promises promises of God, uh, despite our ever-changing moods. Yeah, then, well, that's great, yeah. But then I think that there's something, uh, I, I guess, you know, about the, the, there certainly is, you know, as I've counseled individuals, I've counseled individuals from megachurches, and it, it is all about this experience. And And you know it's tied to basically a second blessing theology of sanctification.
0: Right, that's where it started. Yeah,
1: essentially. Now, one of the things that's amazing to me about this kind of discussion in general is it just has always seemed obvious to me that if you let, like, if you let the charismatics lead lead you in worship or model uh, worship for you, that there's there has to be some something like. um, S- something that you're going to pick some baggage there that's going to be left yeah. over. But then it seems strange that no one, it seems to be strange that we're unwilling to, you know, even conceive of the reality that perhaps there is some in right. general, as it relates to this discussion.
0: Yeah, um, I because we're just, we're just blind to this idea that that of, of embodied theology, right? That's, that's our problem. We think, you know, we can have this, we can have somebody who ha- who's charismatic and we can have him lead the worship, we're not having him preach about the holy spirit, we're not having him teach about his view of the sign gifts. So certainly he's not teaching theology we disagree with, not recognizing that the way that he leads, the way that you know the expectations that he has are embodied in that whole, you know, in that whole service that he's that he's that he's led. And it is impacting us, even though we don't recognize it.
1: All right, let me ask you this uh, question, like related to clarification about your basic argument in general. Yeah. Now, um, basically, uh, the two, the distinctions you made were, would be uh, trying to appeal to, maybe explain them to me one time. To, to the uh, the affections over and against the uh, passions. Is that what you're, you're right. saying? Yeah. The bodily passions. Yeah. All right, so is any appeal to the bodily passions at all through music, music wrong? So like in terms of um, like obviously music affects us you, you, you maybe you think in term maybe you can think in terms of uh, the example of Saul and David playing the harp form right. or something along those lines like uh, yeah. like music obviously has a effect on us now Right but
0: even there and this is a good example Yep you know in one case it soothes Saul Right. In another case, he picked up a sphere and threw it across the room. So <laughs> well, clearly, <laughs> well, but so clearly, the music itself—it wasn't sort of this immediate, ir- irresistible effect. It wasn't sanctifying in and of itself, right? I mean, no. you know, so it, it certainly can have an effect. So yeah, I mean, it's a good question, and I would say two things. Number one, it's on a continuum, right? So it's not like there's these two hard, fast, black and white categories. Well, it seems all-
1: impossible to avoid it. At-
0: all, yeah, all. all music to some okay. degree is going to affect us physically. Yeah, right, so make just the be, distinction just because it's vibrations in the air—that's what music right. is. It does it, it of it necessity.
1: Physical. So right. then, uh, so what's yeah. your, what's your distinguish between the charismatic sort and the other? As it relates yeah, to that so continuum, it's, I mean,
0: again, I it, mean, it, this is very much tied into the discussion we just had a moment ago about where the line is. Right, where the right. line is—I don't know. Right, but. You can, well, no, no, you
1: know I don't want to know the line. I want to know. I'm just more trying to get you to, uh, to pa- paint the like. Uh, yeah, how do exactly. you Tell so, the difference.
0: Yeah. Right. So, so the the mu- it, music that is just immediately stimulating and gra- and and and, um, and and gratifying. It just it picks you up and it moves you without any thought or you know intentionality or engagement. Um, i mean it would do that to a child who doesn't even understand the lyrics it would do that to a pagan i mean that's would the that thing. Be
1: foregrounding the foregrounding uh, like an issue of what you
0: foreground uh i mean it, no it's, it's 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 the it's the it's the effect of the music and the performance itself that that just stimulates the visceral uh the visceral impulses very quickly and almost almost irresistibly without any, you know, without, I mean, it sort of bypasses the mind. Um, And, and I, you know, you asked your initial question was, is that always wrong? And I would say, no, it's not always wrong. Uh, There's a place for just shutting my mind off and relaxing, you know, turning on some music and letting it soothe me or, or whatever, but not in worship. I mean, that's not the time to turn off my mind, right? Not in spiritual matters and, and, uh, and never as a, um, with this sort of expectation that it's, that it is the presence of God, that it is, is, is the experience of God. Right.
1: So, so how do I identify, uh, the question then is though, how do I identify when that's happening? Is it like if I'm feeling my, uh, bodily passion stirred, by the music raw is it what, what how do i identify yeah. when when we've uh well i was
0: just from an objective standpoint it's um uh, it's 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 this what what you know, again talking about music is like dancing about architecture sure you know yeah. it's it's um it's this high, high intensity visceral sort of music um that you know by virtue of Volume, by virtue of the intensity of the rhythm, usually uh, is is the case, which both of those then usually diminish any sort of harmonic richness or melodic richness to the music, uh, because it's all about this the sort of intensity of musical import. Um, there, there's a there's a fascinating book. Uh, the, um, the the subtitle is something like the denigration of language and music and why we should like care. Uh, um, who's the guy who wrote? I forget now his name and um, doing our own thing is the title of the book, I think. But he's a he's an unbeliever, but he's talking about the shifts in language and music. And he talks about music in particular, because what you know, what I'm describing here is what has happened to sort of pop music, too and he talks about the, the the fact that there's this there's been this shift in pop music to this sort of intensity, very driving rhythm um and and a minimization of beautiful melodies and beautiful harmonic richness where that's you know so the opposite then of music that nurtures and cultivates the affections usually is music that has beautiful melody and rich harmony, which is not immediately stimulating, right? You actually have to engage in a little bit of contemplation sure, or you have sure. to give attention to the music in order to appreciate it, right? But with, with this music, the passionate music, it it can just be on in the background and it's impacting you, right? You're feeling the vibrations. I mean, you a car pulls up next to you playing this music and your whole... Your whole car moves right. Whereas music that you know is more modest or more um, more targets the spirit and the affections, you have to actually pay attention to it for it to have any impact. You actually have to you know give it some attention, um, and it's not immediate. You have to learn to appreciate it, right? Which is why people often think that that kind of music is boring, because you can't just turn it on, shut your mind off, and feel something. You actually have to listen to the lyrics, and even if it doesn't have lyrics, you actually have to listen to the music, and over time learn to appreciate the richness of it. So you know the, this music over here, the the music that targets the affections and that uh, carefully and modestly supports you know rich theological lyrics, it takes work to to actually appreciate takes work to have the kind of I- impact on you whereas music that's more about just stimulating the raw passions you don't have to appreciate it at all uh it's it's, it's going to affect you just by virtue of the physics uh of the, yeah. the vibrations you know in the air uh the the, the sweep sweepingness of the music itself and, and all of that so I, I like to think of it you know the different music the music that picks you up and carries you, right, involuntarily, as opposed to music that you use to express the affections of your heart that have been moved by the Holy Spirit through the Word, right? And those are two two very different kinds of musical experiences.
1: So, you know, one of the pushbacks that I've heard uh, from your articles is essentially uh, coming from a place where, you know, an individual wants the music to be... Um, essentially I want wants the lyrics to be meaningful and, and full of content but then uh, you know it seems like in in your article the critique is that you're basically um, rejecting any attempt to have the music match the lyrics itself in terms of what it's doing and so you know if you have a uh, lyrics that are sad then having a tune that's sad uh, how would you respond to that kind of critique?
0: Yeah no I I'm mean I I'm mean I am I'm all about the fittingness of the music to the lyrics I mean absolutely um I'm not going to sing something about the death of Christ to some sort of majestic upbeat you know, uh, well some of them heart- some of them do do that well yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um or or vice versa right I mean, music, yeah. I mean that's kind of my whole argument the music has to fit the it lyrics has to fit. But not only in sort of that sort of simplistic, sad, happy, majestic, contemplative – I mean, that has to fit too, but also theologically, right? So part of that fittingness is whether or not the music simply rouses up physical feelings or whether it actually fits and supports the truth in a a modest way. So what if Um, it's like
1: rousing feelings that are matching the actual – well, so, be...
0: but, but again, it depends on how those are created, right? If it's rousing, but it's just if I'm being aroused by just the music because it's sort of this immediate gratification, yep. then, then I'm re- that I'm really I end up worshiping the feeling,
1: right,
0: rather than having the the feeling and the music supporting. Again, I, so you're I advocating
1: want... like musical humility,
0: <laughs> yeah, way. right. I mean, there, there's there's a modesty, there's an orderliness to it. There's a there's a yeah. Um, I mean, you 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 look at the language of the New Testament, these ideas of of sobriety, self-control, dignity, I mean, that kind of language ought to characterize our music. And the kind of music that's quote-unquote rousing, but really lacks self-control, lacks dignity, lacks reverence. uh, It might be rousing, but it's not the kind of um, again, it doesn't accord to sound doctrine. It's not the kind of qualities that you see advocated as characteristic of spiritual maturity in the New Testament. Well,
1: that's one of the things that's interesting about this kind of discussion. Uh, it, in general, and you know, it's re- related to just your worship discussion in general. And one of the things that. Uh, clearly, like the charismatic movement has taught us to do, is basically, um, it seems like the charismatic movement is trying to encourage us to have the emotional control of a five-year-old girl, essentially. Right. <laughs> and like the more spiritual you are, it seems That's to exactly be the right. less control of your emotions you actually have. And it, I mean, it used to be that we were encouraged to have, you know, temperance and <laughs> you know right. fortitude and these kind of virtues, and but then it seems like you know if uh, in the charismatic kind of framework. Like, you're mm-hmm. not truly spiritual unless right. you are totally out of control of your that's emotions right. as far as that's yeah.
0: concerned. Yeah, Lim and Ruth make that point about how Pentecostalism has sort of mainstreamed this expectation or this, this understanding of intensity as a spiritual virtue. Like, if you're truly spiritual, there's going to be this sort of intensity where, again, okay, show me that in Scripture, right? Where Where in these lists of spiritual maturity in the New Testament— Do you find any language that describes sort of this high octane, intense passion that has come to characterize uh, what we expect of spiritual maturity? Again, it's it's self control, and people again, people don't want to hear that; they don't like that, Um, and that's that's where the charges of boring, you know, come uh, in, right?
1: Because self control, by definition, is boring,
0: right? I guess spontaneous, I guess, yeah, yeah.
1: All right, well, let me uh, change gears just a little bit and then uh, just ask you some practical questions. Uh, But, uh, you know, changing gears just a little bit, or maybe it's not changing gears, you tell me. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things that's happened is, you know, I'm one of these like uh, individuals who have, um, because, you know, I do have a bit of a counseling background and I've seen Uh just the train wreck that happens when people. You know, at a personal level, embrace this charismatic theology in general. Like yeah. uh, one of the things that has happened is I never really got the big Eva memo essentially, um, that, you know, you had uh, Mueller and you had uh, Dever and uh, they made friends with CJ Mahaney. And part of what they're trying to do was, you know, together for the gospel, this big together for the gospel impulse, where we basically normalize the open but cautious position. But then, Yeah, absolutely. now the problem on my end has always been that I'm just saying, hey, I'm counseling these people and like if you think that god is speaking to you personally we have a different religion like we are not reading the same bible and mm-hmm. there's no need to read the bible in that kind of framework and so i've i've never i've never really understood the impulse that you know t4g had to have sovereign grace like leading worship you know every conference and you know even grace church where i'm coming from they they're doing the same thing and you know now that big eva has kind of become um untrustworthy in some circles (laughs) what i'm wondering though is you know i i um so i went to g3 this year and we have um you know we have uh um bob coughlin leading us and you know i i've always thought hey this is like isn't this a little bit weird that we're putting forward charismatics as the examples of how to worship and you know bob even you know picks at us the whole time or not the whole time he picks at us periodically but but i want i want to know what your thoughts are like in terms of just um How does this discussion we're having related to these groups that are much more, they're obviously much more problematic and troublesome than Sovereign Grace. I mean, but then at the same time is like, are we saying anything by having them lead us for one? And then for two, is there anything um, about the critiques that you're making that carries over into that kind of discussion?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So it's a good question. and I, you know, I, um, I want to be real clear Guys like Coughlin, those guys, Sovereign Grace—they're light years better, yeah, different, right, in so many ways. Both theologically, musically, and in so many ways, of course, than Hillsong, Bethel, et cetera. Um, and you know, I've I've interacted with Bob on several occasions. He seems to me to be one of the godliest men I've ever met. Great family, so many. I I don't want to denigrate his you know, his walk with the Lord whatsoever, but we do differ theologically on the issue of the Holy spirit, on the nature of worship, on the nature of relationship with God. Um, And I would say that absolutely comes out in his music and especially how he leads. One of the most fascinating fascinating examples of that, I went to the 2008 T for G which I think was the second one and he led. And of course their practice was just him on the piano, right? So he didn't have the band. He didn't have all of the extra things they normally has. And I could actually tell there was sort of this frustration, like he was limited. His theology needed more than just the piano, but that's all he had. So he did as much as he could. I mean, The shouting out. Well, yeah, that's happened. Repeating, (laughs) repeating the same phrase over and over again. Why was he doing that? Because he was trying to generate the the feelings, but with a lot more limitation. You know, but he's. I mean, he's a a fantastic pianist. He knows what he's doing on that instrument, and so it was just fascinating to observe him embody his theology. With all the limitations that he had with just mm-hmm. that piano, but it was still there, right? And again, not anywhere near. I, I think the degree of problematic, you know, with these uh, other groups we're talking about. But I, I still, think it's still clearly there. It is still impacting how he leads. Again, I'm not judging his motives or his godliness. I just, I disagree with his theology. And in again, in my view. Um, because i think these things are communicated through the way that music is led that it is it is it is embodied there and i'm you know i think we ought to if 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 we don't believe that let's not do it (laughs) you know is is what i would say
1: fair enough well all right so practical questions um you know are churches who worship with these songs and sin
0: hmm yeah okay so this this is a good place to say this too um our i want to be clear our acceptance before god is not based on the perfection of our worship right because if that were the case none of us would be accepted our acceptance before god is 100 based on the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? So right. in nothing of all of this, of what I'm talking, I mean, obviously with these groups that are theologically heretical, okay, now we're, we're talking about problems of the gospel. But beyond that, I'm not in any way saying any of this to say that if you worship in this way, that you are going to hell, right? Um, and again, like there's 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 charismatics, there's Pentecostals with whom I disagree on the Holy Spirit who are godly saved people, right? So I don't want to say that at all. Um, but this is more about, you know, the, what we're doing in the, in the context of worship. And I, I framed it this way in several points that we, that I've made in this, in this discussion. It's about how it's affecting the people. It's what it's doing to our expectations of the nature of our experience with God. And, and, and I'm, I'm legitimately afraid it's harmful for people when they have this expectation that I need this high intense emotional experience in order to actually experience the presence of God. So, so, you know, in sin, you know, I would say in from my perspective in sin, in the same way that I would, that I would say a Presbyterian brother is wrong when he baptizes a baby, right? Because I just disagree with him. Theologically, theologically, not, Sin in the same way as somebody who commits adultery or somebody who you know explicitly disobeys a commandment. This is a theological difference within the realm of orthodoxy. Um, so I'm not going to say you're in sin. You know, like I would say to somebody who's you know sleeping around. Um, do I think it's theologically wrong? Yes. Meaning, meaning
1: you're you're saying you believe it's a an important secondary issue that doesn't necessarily affect one's salvation status
0: but yeah right it it doesn't yeah other than obviously the people who are explicitly heretical it does not affect our status with the lord i just i think it's wrong i think it's harmful i think it is unbiblical um and you know but it's again it's not it's not a um it's not a uh purposeful disobedience of a clear command of the lord right so that's why i hesitate just cl- you know coming out and saying yes they're in sin <laughs> i you know and especially so you, those... you say
1: is that unintentional sin ever and against uh yeah
0: that, I mean, how do that... you classify things you know again what when, you know as a baptist would i say a presbyterian is in sin when he baptizes a, a baby you know i would be hard It'd be hard for me to say that, even though I think they're dead wrong. You know, <laughs> <But> they're, <laughs> so but be- they're, they're they're doing what they think is biblically, you know, is is biblically taught. So, uh, but I do think that they're wrong. So it, it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are they in sin? And you would
1: ground that. Uh, you, I mean, um, you be you be grounding that not just in the in the uh, embodied theology argument, but then in all the arguments t- together as well
0: or well no i mean if somebody is teaching false doctrine well i mean know, like to, if
1: we're playing like you know if like if we're at a church we're playing hill song music then obviously you know there's a sense in which we're um you know encouraging the weaker brother to stumble we're financially supporting yeah. in a certain sense uh that kind of yeah, stuff but i
0: even there i i think there is room for disagreement discussion on that point uh, I mean, the financial it, one Right, the financial one, or even the you know causing someone to stumble. You feel I mean, like is that's it, fuzzier.
1: That's a fuzzier argument. I think argument.
0: it, you know, I I think it is problematic to support financially. I think it does cause weaker brother, brothers brothers just to stumble. But I'm not going to be as dogmatic on that point. Right, I, I think there there might be room yeah. for for argument disagreement there um and if a group sings hill song you know i'm not going to say hey you're in sin you know you're a false church yeah, right yeah, i'm yeah. not this that's the whole nature of hopefully my heart and my approach here is i'm just trying to warn people this is influencing your congregation so should
1: basically say it's like a very so very unwise is that kind of where you're Yeah, absolutely it? very unwise not necessarily clear black and white depending on what we're talking about uh or
0: yeah. well again i mean i because I think the the actual singing of the music is an application of deeper theological things. I'm more concerned about the deeper theological things, right? right? Yeah, right. So if people don't if people don't get what I'm saying theologically yet, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna condemn them for for singing the stuff, right? Um, but the so only way they're I,
1: gonna stop is if you say, "Hey, repent! The end is near. her, <laughs> you know, The kingdom of heaven, yeah, well, right?
0: Because it's not. I mean, this is not a gospel issue. Right. But but I want to be. Clear. I mean, I, I hesitate to say that because when a lot of people hear me say that, they say, "Oh, then it doesn't matter."
1: No, 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 no. Well, that's what most people hear. <laughs>
0: Just because it's not a gospel issue doesn't mean it's not important. There are a right. lot of things that are not gospel issues that are therefore that, that are nevertheless important. I think this is a very important thing. Um, very important it, secondary issue
1: that we should yeah, contend earnestly for. Is that right? That's right. That's right. All right. So what do I said, what do I do if my church plays these songs? Should I leave mm-hmm. a church over this?
0: Yeah, I've had I've had questions like that. Um, you know, I again. This is a perfect example of application versus underlying theology. Right. If I'm in a church and they're singing these things, my my first impulse, right? Or let's just speak to you know the, this hypothetical person. I, my, your first impulse should not be just I'm out of here. Right. Just have some have some conversations with leadership, and try to get deeper into the heart of their theology of worship. What do they believe? Are, are you know are they singing these things just because it's what evangelical churches do and they they don't have any you know they they just they you know they need to think more carefully about this or are they singing these because they have a theology in which they believe that we usher in the presence of god through music if you ask the questions and you realize that's the, that's the theology okay at that point it might be time to leave Unless there's movement, right? Because there's a lot of churches that come out of that 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 reform. Sure. Um, but if 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 you have conversations with the leadership and they clearly have this sort of sacramental theology, and it's it's just they're confirmed in it, they know they know what they're doing, they believe it because they've they're convinced of it. You know, I would say it's probably time to leave. But if you have conversations and you realize either there's just not been much thought about this at all, or you know, which is the truth in the many, many cases, they're in a process. Change doesn't happen overnight. Reform doesn't happen overnight. We should always be reforming. And I would urge church members who are in churches where the trajectory is moving in the right direction. It may not be there yet. They still might be singing things that you think are problematic. But if their toes are pointed in the right direction, if they're moving in the right direction, you ought to be the kind of church member that stands right up next to them and says, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna walk this direction too and I'm gonna do everything I can to to support and 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 help things move in the right direction.
1: Look for direction, not perfection, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's enough. a good
0: way to say
1: <laughs> Yeah. So uh right. Um can you can you uh are there any songs that you actually like personally from any of these groups? This is a confession
0: time. <laughs> I guess. yeah no <laughs> i mean you know i mean when I, I just you know, i was curious you know. if i'm in a setting where they hear them do i can i can i recognize the no. sort of emotional appeal sure yeah. um but you know i'm i'm just convictionally so convinced of these things it you know i don't have any
1: uh, no uh but, did i lose you
0: no i'm here okay no
1: something happened all right um so um so all right uh, fair enough all right is it okay to listen to some of these songs personally and not in corporate worship so you mentioned like uh, a place for right tapping into the uh, bodily passions raw as it relates to Listening to yeah, but, mood music, relaxing music, that kind right.
0: of thing. Yeah, I would, but I, I mean, I, there, I think there, there can be a difference between what I do corporately and what I do personally to some degree. Um, but with this issue, when I'm talking about it, sort of forming within me a certain expectation of the presence of God. If I if if that's my diet six days a week, and in, in my home in my car, then I'm being affected and shaped. And when I go to Sunday worship, it's going to be boring. I'm I'm not going to be because again, this this stuff, this stuff sort of precludes the ability to appreciate depth and richness of something that's not immediately gratifying. So when I talked about shutting your mind off and just listening to mood music, I'm not talking about sacred music or worship. Sure. Even even from a personal perspective, I'm just talking about you know, uh, just you know some downtime. Um, I, I want to be real careful when I'm taking God's holy truth and setting it to music. Uh, there, again, there can be differences. I think there's some things that where I could be edified on a personal level that might not just be appropriate for a corporate setting. You know, so there there are differences. I think between what's appropriate for corporate and what's appropriate for personal. But even there. I want to make sure that it's still fitting and that it's not forming my expectations and affections in ways contrary to what truly is the nature of communion with God through Christ by faith.
1: So, I mean, essentially, uh, you think that more a person is truly walking by faith and not attempting to, you know, tap into God raw in that kind of way, the more the, um these songs should be that come across as vapid. And is is that true
0: yes um
1: but i, think, I mean, you think people should be repelled by them the more they grow in the christian life is essentially what i'm trying to get at the more they grow and the more that they understand yeah. who god is and should they necessarily be repelled by them Do
0: i mean they, i i think so uh but at the same time i think there are some really theologically astute people right there there's mind and there's heart there's theology and there's affections and they don't always mature or develop or deepen at the same level so there's a lot of people who i believe are really godly holy they walk with god they're mature christians but their sort of imagination of god and their affections have not been matured and trained to the same degree again largely probably because of the of the, of the worship in the churches they've been involved in so that that's why i think both are so important right if a person is um is is mature in terms of their imagination of who god is in terms of their affections toward god then yes and that's why when you ask me do i like any of that music it just i don't it doesn't even appeal to me i'm not saying i'm the epitome of maturity but i just you know my my affections have been trained to a degree to where it's like you know you develop it's like you know food you develop a certain appreciation a certain palate for good rich he- you know healthy quality food and the big mac just doesn't taste good anymore you know um so i think there is some of that that hopefully is occurring in a person's life
1: but you don't want to say it across the board essentially
0: you you well i just i want to allow for the fact that there are people who are yeah. theologically mature who may be wise who may be godly who may truly walk with god but have a blind but- spot but there's this, you know, there's this blind spot. There's this area that they've not. Again, I mean, this again. This is why the couple of books I've written most recently is my main reason for doing it because I think there's a lot of churches like this that have really made some huge strides in terms of reforming their soteriology and their view of God's sovereignty and and their ecclesiology and their appreciation and love for expositional preaching, and they've just not given attention to worship yet. And I would say that part of their church is yet very unreformed and un and, and immature in that sense, and, and they just haven't – that's one area. So I just don't want to give the impression that people mature – every aspect of who someone is matures all at the same level. Sometimes certain aspects of who we are mature sure. and deepen, and there might be some areas that are yet uh, underdeveloped. Sure.
1: No, that's fair. I think more of the impulse behind there is just thinking about the nature of how you relate with God in general and considering that you know walking by faith is such a primary aspect yeah. of the Christian life, then yeah, if you, absolutely then it seems like um you know some something interesting to think about. Well Scott, you've been a good sport. Yeah, um, Go ahead. I've grilled you a little bit but <laughs> no it's but good it, it's thanks good.
0: for the opportunity to clarify some things and good. I mean, it's hard to communicate everything i want to communicate you know through a couple of blog posts and yeah uh, always appreciative of the opportunity to kind of share my heart and clarify so it's yes good. sir
1: well uh do you have anything um anything you want to add uh that could be helpful based on what we said so far any you want yeah, to set, i
0: mean i would just you know i maybe shameless plug but um again, you can only communicate so much through blog posts, sure. but a lot of my books deal with these kinds of things at far deeper level. And and the two that came out in February, uh, Change from Glory into Glory, the Liturgical Story of the Christian Faith, traces some of what we started with, this kind of difference between uh, sort of a covenant renewal worship and how theology and worship inter- interplay and sacramental theology and all of that at a far deeper level. And I would encourage people, if you're interested in, in diving deeper, that's that's a good place to go. And then the other book I already mentioned, uh, Biblical Foundations of, of Corporate Worship, uh, that also came out in February, um, again, I wrote that specifically to try to help to articulate this Reformed Covenant Renewal Theology of Worship that I've been talking about in a very simple, biblical, straightforward manner. Um, so, what I tried to articulate in these blog posts in very, you know short amount of time, some of these other books might be might be really helpful.
1: Yeah, well, how can people connect with you? Uh, maybe you can do all the plugs. So, you plug the books. Yeah, and-
0: so, I mean, g- g3men.org is where I blog, and and podcasts and everything you can find there. But I also have scottannual.com where I sort of post articles. All my books are there. Um, so the kind of those two places, g3men.org and scottannual.com Uh, if you go there, then you can also find Twitter, everything Facebook, out, yeah. Instagram, you know, and, um, kind of all, all, you know, scholarly articles I've written, books, sermons, you know, lectures, all kinds of stuff that might be, um, Might be helpful for anybody who's interested.
1: Well, I appreciate once again your time. Thanks for coming on.
0: Yep. Thanks a lot. This has been another episode of Bible Bashed. We hope you have been encouraged and blessed through our discussion. We thank you for all your support and ask you to continue to like and subscribe to Bible Bashed and share our podcast with your friends and on social media. Please reach out to us with your questions, pushback, and